Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So if you live in or have visited Greenville or Charleston, South Carolina, Odds are pretty good that you maybe have seen a historical marker here or there that honors Joel Poinsett or visited one of the many places that bear his name. He was a statesman who was connected to some really important moments in our nation's history. But uh, he was, of course, also human, and not all of his actions really look so noble upon closer inspection. Uh, It's very, very interesting reading histories that involve him because some of the ones written closer to when he lived are very ebullient. And as we get farther and farther out on the timeline, people start to see the bigger picture and how he impacted things, and they get a little more, oops, uh, there were some problems here. Not so great. Uh, Right. Poinsett is also credited with introducing the holiday plant named after him, the poinsettia, into the U.S. from Mexico. So this is a bit of a holiday episode, and it's actually kind of a case of two parts biography, and then the last part will be holiday horticulture. And because of that holiday connection, uh, we should also mention that this episode is sponsored by FedEx, who asked to sponsor one of our holiday episodes this year. So Joel Roberts Poinsett was born into a wealthy family in Charleston, South Carolina on March 2nd, 1779. He was a descendant of Pierre Poinsett and Sarah Fouchereau, who had established the family in the colonial southern, what would be the U.S., in the 1680s. So even though he was born when the United States was still in its infancy as an independent nation, the Poinsett family had been there for quite a while before that. Yeah, they were well-established, wealthy, known in the community already. And as a note on place of birth, in case you go digging, uh, I did find one family genealogy write-up that mentioned that Poinsett was actually born in London and then naturalized. That doesn't seem to be the case. Most official sources list Charleston as his place of birth, although it does appear that the family traveled to London when Joel was still very, very tiny, and I think that's part of the confusion in any disparate accounts you might see. His father was Dr. Alicia Poinsett, and Dr. Poinsett was one of his son's earliest teachers. Joel's family's wealth enabled him to get really a lot of education. After his private tutoring as a young boy, he went on to Greenfield, Connecticut, where he was educated by the Reverend Dr. Timothy Dwight IV, who would eventually become president of Yale College. And Joel, being uh, born in the South, found the climate in Connecticut to be unpleasant. One biography that I looked at written in the late 1880s indicates that he was often ill because of the cold weather in Connecticut. So after two years there, he returned home to the the warmer Southern temps. And next, he went on to St. Paul's School outside of London, which was run by one of Poinsett's relatives. During this time, he studied classics and languages and became really multifluent in a lot of languages. He spoke German, French, Spanish, and Italian. He also picked up a bit of Russian as well. Next, he moved on to medical school in Edinburgh, Scotland. Although, once again, the weather and the effort of his studies led to some difficulties with his health. He took a sojourn to Portugal and then finally landed at a military school in Woolwich, England. Kind of seems like he was a little bit unfocused, but he really responded to the military school, and he decided that that would be his life's career. That did not go over well with his dad. 
<laughs> Dr. Poinsett did not want his son to be a soldier. Uh, and after some back and forth, it was decided that Joel would go back home to South Carolina and study law. And that lasted for a year before Poinsett decided that that was also a path that was simply not for him. When he was finished with formal education, Poinsett traveled the globe for seven years, primarily in Europe and Western Asia. Two years into these travels, his father died and left him a significant fortune that left him in this enviable situation of really having no urgency for choosing his life's vocation. His wealth and his linguistic skills made him a source of fascination wherever he traveled, and he was able to meet heads of state and basically hang out with the highest rungs of society on his journeys. Poinsett did eventually return to the U.S., and though he thought he would finally pursue a military career, in 1810, he was given an appointment as a special agent in Chile and Argentina, working for President Madison. And this work was investigative in nature. He was kind of undercover. He was to study the revolutionary endeavors in those places and in other South American countries as they made moves to gain independence from Spain. Part of the reason that Poinsett was given this job was because he was well-known at the time for his extensive studies abroad. Most people believed that he had an unsurpassed knowledge of European politics, especially as it related to intentions regarding the expansion of land holdings in North America. Additionally, his lengthy travels after he left school had, as we mentioned, introduced him to a lot of leaders in a variety of countries. They all spoke pretty well of him. For example, Tsar Alexander of Russia is said to have told John Quincy Adams that Poinsett should be the U.S. ambassador to Russia. This appointment and mission to South America came at a time when Spain's colonies had grown frustrated with being governed from Europe by Napoleon's brother Joseph Bonaparte, who Napoleon had installed as the King of Spain. The U.S. was also embroiled in the tensions that would lead up to the War of 1812 with England. Europe was carefully watching what was happening in North and Central America, and Madison wanted an expert on all of these moving parts to figure out the best way through it and hopefully a way to bolster U.S. territory holdings in the process. Poinsett supported the revolutionary efforts in Chile and Argentina, both from his own personal perspective and at Madison's direction. The U.S. wanted to establish trade agreements with the provisional governments of the revolutionaries there. One of the goals was to exert some influence on them before the British could. The British also had relationships with these revolutionary governments and their very lucrative ports. So it was uh, unsurprising, based on various things we've talked about with U.S. foreign policy, that, like, the U.S. was trying to get there before anybody else. Yeah, <laughs> It's kind of like, um, you know, a precursor to Scramble for Africa just happening in South America. It's a lot of the same playbook. And in Chile, Poinsett became more and more embroiled in the politics there, even fighting alongside insurgent forces and encouraging them to make some pretty bold moves in their efforts, which ultimately failed. When the leaders of the movement were captured, Poinsett got to make his way back to the United States. In 1816, Poinsett returned to Charleston and was voted in as a member of the State House of Representatives before he even got home. So he had that job waiting for him when he got back to the state, and then later he was re-elected for a second term. 
1819, he became the president of the South Carolina Board of Public Works. And it was during his time in this role that he oversaw some pretty significant infrastructure developments for South Carolina. So uh, modern-day South Carolina's secondary State Road 42 actually began as a point-set project, running from Charleston into North Carolina and creating one major thoroughfare to replace the need to use several connecting smaller roads to make that same route. In 1820, he became a member of the U.S. House of Representatives and was made part of the Foreign Affairs Committee because of his background. In 1822, Poinsett was given a mission to travel to Mexico at the behest of President James Monroe to assess the potential for a diplomatic relationship between the two nations. Out of this travel, he published the book Notes on Mexico in 1824. Notes on Mexico contains some really racist rhetoric. Uh, this is actually pretty unsurprising. Poinsett was a slave owner. He definitely believed that a hierarchy based on race helped maintain order. And he wrote in his book about Mexico that the fledgling country was able to function on its own. He thought it could govern itself, but also thought that it would do that in the best possible way if the white Mexicans maintained seats of power. From 1825 to 1829, Poinsett was the first U.S. minister to Mexico appointed by John Quincy Adams. This is a little bit funny because it came from a president that Poinsett had campaigned against particularly hard. He had been a staunch supporter of Andrew Jackson in the 1824 election. Andrew Jackson had been offered the Mexico minister post but had turned it down, as had a number of other people before they got to Poinsett on the list. (laughs) Yeah, he's, you know, often lauded as this first minister to Mexico, but it's like, well, but he was like fourth choice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are going to talk about Joel Poinsett's time in Mexico, which is a mixed bag to be sure. But before we get into that, let's take a little sponsor break. While Joel Poinsett was in Mexico, he became so well-known that his name became a new word. Poinsettismo. To be clear, this is not a word with a good connotation. It is pejorative. It means someone who is a snooty budinsky, who involves themselves in the affairs of others, and presumes to know better as an outsider than anyone involved in a situation. And he got that name because he inserted himself into the goings-on of politics in Mexico to the point that the Mexican government had kind of just had it with him. And he really just stepped in it right out of the gate in the time that he was there. Poinsett was a member of the Freemasons, and immediately after he started his position as minister plenipotentiary, several lodges asked for assistance in getting a charter as a group of York Rite lodges. He did help them secure that charter. In Mexico at this time, Freemasonry was akin to political parties, and the York Rite lodges were reformist. The Scottish Rite lodges were more conservative. And as a man who was operating as a U.S. agent in Mexico and helping the York Rite Lodges, which also happened to align more closely with U.S. ideals at the time and attending their meetings, really points that was making a very strong political statement. We're going to come back to the Freemasonry issue in a moment. Oh, yes. So one of Poinsett's directives in this job was to try to get Mexico to agree to an alteration of the terms of the adams oney Treaty of 1819. 
That was the treaty between the U.S. and Spain that established new boundary lines for each country's claims on land in North America. In the treaty, which you'll sometimes also see called the Transcontinental Treaty and sometimes even the Purchase of Florida, Spain ceded Florida and gave up the Oregon country. And in exchange, Spain gained control over Texas. as a very simplified version. Yeah, and of course, the U.S. wanted some of that land that it had given over to Spain in the treaty. They wanted to get that land back. Once the Mexican War of Independence had ended and Mexico had signed the Declaration of Independence of the Mexican Empire in September of 1821, that offered an opportunity to rework this whole deal, this time with Mexico. In 1827, as part of his dogged efforts to gain more land for the U.S., Poinsett was given authority to make an offer of $1 million to Mexico for a tract of land bounded by the Rio Grande north to the Arkansas River. Lucas Alamán, Mexico's Secretary of Foreign Affairs, turned this offer down. In 1828, Poinsett signed a treaty with Mexico to accept the 1819 boundary line that had been negotiated with Spain as valid under the Mexican government, although that treaty wasn't ratified by Mexico for several years. To Poinsett, that seemed like a pretty minor setback. And because Anglo-Americans were moving into Texas already, he thought that the issue could be revisited down the road. Uh, with a case made that U.S. citizens were already living in this disputed area. This did ultimately work out, although it did take a while. Right. There's that whole Republic of Texas claiming independence and then becoming annexed as part of the U.S. Uh, and it part of it was that um, there were Anglo people living there at the time. So a growing power base for the Yorkinos, those were members of the Yorkrite lodges, in each election throughout Poinsett's time in Mexico, led to a suspicion that there was some shady and seditious work going on in these societies. And because he had helped the Yorkrite lodges, Poinsett was implicated in this suspicion. Poinsett claimed via a pamphlet that he did not really understand that this was the case and that he thought that the lodges he helped were just interested in the usual humanitarian work of the Freemasons. He went on to say that he had chosen to withdraw from participating in the meetings when he realized that what was happening with the lodge was that it was furthering the political interests of its members. And this is really kind of an interesting case to make for his innocence in the matter, because in claiming that he didn't mean to tip the balance of power in the country where he was assigned because he did not know that the lodges were political, he's kind of admitting that he probably didn't really understand his job. <laughs> it's like, I didn't know, but aren't you the expert in Mexico and European relations? Well, I accidentally didn't know what I was doing in my job. But at the same time, uh, he was telling a very different story to his bosses in the U.S. He actually had written that the work that he was doing with the Freemasons had been the best way to counter British influence in Mexico. In 1827, Vice President Nicolas Bravo, in connection with a planned rebellion, put together a four-part pronouncement known as the Plan de Montaño. In it, Bravo stated that secret societies should be prohibited by law he was himself a Mason of the Scottish Rite Lodge. Also proclaimed that the president's minister should be ejected and replaced and that the country's constitution of 1824 should be enforced and that Joel Poinsett should be booted out of the country. 
please let me never be so bad at a job that an entire country wants to have me removed. Uh, In 1828, after a long period of tension and part of this rebellion that we we mentioned this was connected to and the violence that came with it, General Vicente Guerrero was elected president of Mexico. Guerrero was a York Wright Freemason and Poinsett was happy with this election outcome. But Guerrero, even though Poinsett was kind of an ally of his, also recognized that Joel Poinsett was a problematic and destabilizing figure in the country. By 1829, everyone was so irritated with Poinsett and that whole situation that Guerrero pressured the U.S. government to recall him, which President Andrew Jackson did, and the man who had been referred to as, quote, a sagacious and hypocritical foreign minister as zealous for the prosperity of his own country as inimical to ours was sent home. Things actually got even worse with the new minister to Mexico, who was Anthony Butler, but that is outside the scope of this episode, possibly a future one. In 1830, as part of a Freemason ceremony in which he was being honored, Poinsett stated, quote, I have been most unjustly accused of extending our order and our principles into a neighboring country with a view of converting them into an engine of political influence. I solemnly aver that this accusation is false and unfounded, and that if Masonry has anywhere been converted to any other purposes than that for which it was instituted, I have in no way contributed to such perversion of its principles. After this, Poinsett became a major player in the Unionist Party in South Carolina. In 1830, he was once again elected to the State House of Representatives. The nullification crisis was brewing during his time in office, in which John C. Calhoun was leading a call for the state to nullify the federal tariffs of 1828 and 1832, which in very simple terms favored northern economic stability and heavily taxed southern goods. Poinsett worked to keep South Carolina in the Union, keeping Andrew Jackson posted on all the developments as they unfolded, Jackson made a proclamation to South Carolina in December of 1832 as Calhoun and his supporters were hoping to get other states to join in their rejection of the tariffs. Jackson's missive made clear that what they were trying to do was treason. Ultimately, of course, the Union remained intact. And in 1837, Poinsett was named as Secretary of War by President Martin Van Buren, in part as a reward for his work during the nullification crisis. In his position on the president's cabinet, Poinsett was instrumental in the forced migration of thousands of Native Americans from their lands under the Indian Removal Act. In 1840, Poinsett was one of the founders of the National Institute for the Promotion of Science. This organization was renamed the National Institution, and under that moniker, it became the caretaker of artifacts and collections that were part of a vision that Poinsett had of the United States developing museums that were equal to any elsewhere in the world. This collection grew, and this entity eventually evolved into the Smithsonian Institution. He's such a mixed bag, that Joel Poinsett. Uh, In 1841, Joel Poinsett's position as Secretary of War ended as William Henry Harrison was inaugurated, and he retired at this point. He settled in at the family plantation in Charleston, but he didn't stay entirely out of politics, even though he was no longer holding office or any kind of position of prominence officially. This was, of course, 20 years before the U.S. Civil War, and a lot of the issues that would lead to that conflict were already part of a very heated debate. As a secessionist movement grew in South Carolina, Poinsett was vocally against it. Once again, he used his influence to keep the Union intact. Poinsett died on December 12, 1851, of tuberculosis, which was also made worse by pneumonia. 
And today, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, there are historical markers dedicated to Poinsett throughout South Carolina and a number of places named after him. In 2001, a life-size statue of Poinsett was placed in front of the old Greenville Courthouse, and in it he's depicted sitting on a rectangular base with his hat and coat placed beside him. People tend to, like, sit next to him for photo ops. I have to have seen this, and I have no recollection of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we're going to talk about the plant that has become so deeply connected to Christmas and to winter decor. That ties into Poinsett's story. First, we will hear from some sponsors that keep our show going. Now, since we are headed into the winter holidays, we wanted to focus a little bit on Joel Poinsett's impact on them. We mentioned earlier that he is credited with bringing the plant that came to be named after him, the poinsettia, into the U.S. from Mexico. And this happened in 1828 when he was serving as ambassador to Mexico. The poinsettia, Latin name Euphorbia pulcherima, is a shrub that normally flowers in the winter. The blooms, kind of in quotation marks, are really modified leaves that form into little clusters of bracts. And then the color change in those leaves requires 12 hours of darkness every day for five consecutive days in order for that to happen. That is a part of a process called photoperiodism. Once the color change happens, then they need a lot of sunlight to get to maximum color saturation. In its native Central American habitat, the poinsettia can grow as tall as 10 to 15 feet. That's three to four and a half meters high. And it's a perennial shrub, although a lot of people, I would say, probably only see them as potted plants around the holidays if you are not in those areas. Yeah, there are surprising numbers of things that we see as potted plants in North America that in Central America and the Caribbean and the Caribbean are like gigantic. Yeah, I mean, even um, I lived in Arizona when I was very little and we had poinsettias growing in the yard Mm -hmm. that got quite big, but like I don't even have hugely clear memories of them. I've seen them in pictures. Yeah, so that I mean, that all leads to a question of how did this plant go from being just a native plant in Central America to becoming the it flower of the winter holiday season. While he was traveling in Taxco, Mexico, southwest of Mexico City, Poinsett is said to have encountered this really striking plant. The locals called it La Flor de Noche Buena. That literally translates to good night flower, although it has a different meaning that we'll talk about in just a moment. This plant was well known for centuries before Poinsett saw it, with the Nahua people's name for it, Ketla Xochitl, attributed to the plant all the way back to the Aztecs. The lore there is that the red of the flower was associated with blood sacrifice. And we also know that it was a highly prized plant in Aztec culture and considered a royal plant. So even though it didn't have great survival in the city of Tenochtitlan, a precursor to Mexico City, my apologies for that pronunciation, due to its high altitude, the plants were regularly brought there from the surrounding areas. That plant, which Montezuma is said to have been particularly fond of, was used in religious ceremonies and also in more practical applications. Pigment extracted from the plants was used in textile dyeing, and the sap was believed to have medicinal properties. That sap can, in fact, cause an adverse reaction for some people in the form of a rash or otherwise irritated skin. That phrase, Noche Buena, though, is also used for Christmas Eve. And the plant has other names in Spanish that translate to things like fire flower, Christmas star, and others. So well before Poinsett encountered it, this plant was already associated with Christmas. 
And there is actually a folklore tale that goes along with the post-Aztec Christmas Association. This legend is about a little girl who was very poor, and she was dismayed as she walked to church because she had nothing to leave on the altar for the baby Jesus. She heard the voice of an angel telling her to take branches from the plants growing by the path where she walked. The angel, according to the story, had heard her praying and reassured her that these plants would be a fine gift to leave on the altar. Some versions of the story characterize these plants as weeds. Others just talk about them being sort of native flora. But when the little girl, still crying, placed these cuttings on the altar, her tears transformed them into beautiful red flowers. And these, according to legend, were the first flores de noche buena. I feel like I might have heard a version of the story in church. Probably. Poinsett was interested in botany, and particularly with the idea of importing plants from other parts of the world into the U.S. So when he saw these plants, he said to have sent some home to South Carolina, where he already had hothouses. According to legend, he first spotted them in a nativity scene. He tended the plants that he shipped home and then propagated them, and as his collection of them started to grow, he shared them with other plant enthusiasts in his social circle. And though Poinsett brought the plants into the country, according to legend, it was after he shipped some to Philadelphia that their commercial viability became evident. Shortly after he began successfully propagating the red and green plants in his greenhouse, Poinsett sent some to a friend in Philadelphia named Colonel Robert Carr. In June 1829, Carr showed the plant at a flower show held by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, and interest in these beautiful plants was instant among the hundreds of people who saw it in the show. We really don't know for sure if that version of events is true. Any of this movement that happened might have taken place at Poinsett's direction, but he had not come back from Mexico yet by June of 1829, so he could not have been physically involved at this stage of things. There is also a letter written to Poinsett by one of his friends in 1830 that suggests that a woman from his hometown of Charleston was quite miffed to have been left out of the plant distribution. I love this letter a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It is so snippy. Yes, it reads, Mrs. Herbemont of Charleston has been very vexed with you when she learned by the papers that several northern gardeners had received seeds and plants you had sent them from that land of vegetable beauties, Mexico, and that you had not in one instance remembered her. I know exactly this type of... (laughs) I was going to say, for anyone who has never been around an older, assertive southern woman, this is like the prototype. (laughs) So it does seem possible that the poinsettia never made a stop in South Carolina, but was sent directly to Philadelphia. There's evidence that four shipments of seeds and plants from Mexico were shipped by poinsettia to Philadelphia. We don't know for certain if the plant that uh, came to be known as the poinsettia was among them. He was sending a whole variety of specimens over the course of his years there. In some instances, friends had visited him in Mexico and carried seeds back to the U.S. with them, and that also could have been how the plants were imported. But we do know that a nurseryman in Philadelphia named Robert Buist, or Buist, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, becomes a key figure in the rise of the poinsettia's popularity outside of Mexico. Buist, who was from Scotland, took a cutting to Edinburgh, where he shared it with a colleague named James McNabb. McNabb, in turn, shared the plant with a botanist in Berlin, Germany, named Karl Bildenau. 
You'll sometimes see the poinsettia noted as first being identified in the 1830s, and that appears to be linked to Vildenau naming it Euphorbia pulcherima. Another Scottish botanist, Robert Graham, tried to change the name to Poinsettia pulcherima in 1836. And while Poinsettia stuck as a common name, Euphorbia pulcherima remains the plant's official name. Sometimes there's another man, historian William Hickling Prescott, who's credited with honoring Poinsett with the Poinsettia name, but it did not appear in Prescott's writing until 1843, and that was in the book The History of the Conquest of Mexico. And today, the cultivation and sale of poinsettias are a huge commercial industry. It is considered one of the most valuable potted flowering plants. Sometimes you will see it listed as number one on that list. In 2010, in the U.S. alone, it was estimated to have a wholesale value of $145 million. And the U.S. only makes up about one-third of the market for this popular holiday bloom. The other two-thirds is primarily Europe. The largest grower of poinsettias in the world is the Paul Ecke Ranch in California, estimated to produce about 50% of the plants sold globally each year and 70% of the poinsettias that are sold in the U.S. Poinsett's legacy as poinsettismo persists, though, especially when it comes to these plants. There is a belief still among Mexican gardeners that Poinsett ensured that as the Florida Noche Buena became a lucrative commodity, nobody from its native country would actually profit from it. There's no evidence of a patent being filed by Poinsett or on his behalf, something that would not have even legally been possible for plants until decades after his death. But there's a persistent rumor that he purposely used the patent system to put legal barriers in place to prevent Mexican nurseries from propagating popular varieties of the poinsettia for sale. This is almost certainly born from the fact that he was just so deeply disliked in Mexico by the time he left. Starting in the mid-19th century, poinsettia popularity soared in the United States, establishing it as a standard part of holiday decor. Today, there are actually more than 100 different poinsettia varieties, and they come in a wide range of colors. White, pink, and red are pretty commonly seen in most nurseries, but they can also come in yellow, purple, salmon, and even variegated versions. In the U.S., December 12th is National Poinsettia Day in honor of the anniversary of Joel Poinsett's life. Coincidentally, this is also the Day of the Virgin of Guadalupe, celebrated in Mexico, which is normally also marked with a display of poinsettias. Yeah, so that is Joel Poinsett and his strange, strange <laughs> legacy, but also, uh, you know, poinsettias, which I love as a flower. Yeah. Be cautious having them in your house with lots of cats. We're going to talk about that in the Casual Friday. Yeah. Because okay. um, some of their reputation as super poisonous might be a little overblown. Yeah. yeah. But I think be careful with all plants yeah. around animals because you just never know. That's, that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't have living plants in my house for the most part. Um, <laughs> One of my cat's favorite thing to do now is to shred an African violet every time she gets the opportunity. I also have a little bit of listener mail completely unrelated to any of this. 
Okay. This is from our listener, Michelle, who was writing about Maria Anna Mozart and our our discussion of uh, her giving up her firstborn son. She writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. Thank you for your podcast. I love it so much, and it's kept me company since I discovered it in 2015 when I broke my back. In December of 2018, I managed to listen to almost the entire archive of episodes, which kept me sane while I was lying in bed healing. Uh, What an honor to be able to help. I am so sorry that happened and glad it sounds like you are healed up. I just wanted to drop you a line about your episode, Maria Anna Mozart. During it, you mentioned that she gave her baby Leopold up to her father just after birth. And during the behind the scenes about this, you spent a bit of time discussing this and how it was, quote, super weird, which is what I called it. Uh, I am from New Zealand. And here, the Maori customary practice of, I'm going to guess on this pronunciation, Wangi is where a child is raised by someone in their family who is not their birth parents. Often the first child is given to the grandparents or the brother or sister of a parent, particularly if the brother or sister has no children of their own. There are all sorts of reasons for this, but one of them is strengthening Wenao, extended family ties. This was particularly done in the case of Kamatua. Uh, I'm going to apologize again because I know I'm messing up all of these words. Um, those mean elders, that's grandparents in this case, taking in a grandchild to pass down tribal traditions and knowledge. This is not the same as fostering or adoption, as Wangai children are seen as a valuable resource and a gift of love. The entire well-being of the group is enhanced by allowing the child to be raised by Huanau who have the resources to meet their needs. And the child is raised provided knowledge of their birth parents and the entire extended family is usually involved in their upbringing. In most cases, the child is placed at birth, but sometimes when they're older, and this can be for a short period of time or their entire childhood. Uh, She says, I'm paraphrasing a bit from this research paper, which she linked to. Uh, When you talked about Maria Anna giving young Leopold to her father right after his birth, I immediately associated this with this practice. I wondered whether Maria Anna had had the same goal in mind as the practice of Wangai, where she wanted to strengthen her bond to her father and the next generation, Leopold Jr., to the older Leopold. My guess is that she knew her father would dote on the child and he had better resources and more time to devote to the child and she already had five children at home to take care of. Uh, And then she sent some other uh, listening notes. But it's... um, it's a, a cool story. I like that she shared this with us because it is like different cultures certainly have different um, different approaches to this. Oh, sure. I think sure. Our, our like that's super weird. It's more like in most Anglo-European cultures yeah. at that time, it was definitely considered odd enough that a lot of people wrote about how strange the situation was. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of when we were talking about um, practice babies and, yeah. and the focus on like whether having so many different caregivers in a baby's life was going to cause problems. And how, uh, and a lot of other cultures elsewhere in the world, and also like within the United States among indigenous cultures, like having a lot of different caregivers, not anything that Completely anybody seems, common. Yeah, it's like yep. that's just how it works. Um, so yeah, I I had sort of the same thought when I read that email. But it's also really cool, and I didn't I didn't realize how common that was. Certainly in um, in Maori culture, it's a culture I don't know nearly enough about, even though I find it fascinating. Um, and the art that comes out of it blows my mind in the most beautiful way. Uh, so thank you, thank you for writing us, Michelle. If you would like to write to us, you should absolutely do that. You can do it at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History pretty much everywhere. And if you'd like to subscribe to the show, uh, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.